God bless you. It's so good to be back again with you today. Thanks so much for coming. We realize it's not always possible to travel to a service somewhere and to fellowship with the other people there. So we bring that service to you wherever you are. And we hope you'll be encouraged today as you discover God's peace and His promises for your life. No matter where you are, you may be in Israel in a town that doesn't have a congregation to go to. You may be somewhere else throughout Europe. You may be anywhere in the world, the United States. We want to bring you a service that you can use to learn about God's love for you and about His Word, which gives you wonderful peace and promises in life. Would you open in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6? That's where we're going to be again today, and we'll also show those verses up here in the video for you, just to make it easier for you to follow along. We're continuing in our Beginnings series, in the book of Beginnings, HaSefer Bereshit, the book of Beginnings. And today we're going to be talking about a story you already know. It's the story about Noah's Ark. And we're going to be talking about the Ark, though, using the lens of science and engineering to look at it. And when we do, you're going to see some amazing things about that ark's design that demonstrates God's advanced design knowledge, of course, that He has, that that knowledge didn't really exist about shipbuilding for ships that large until thousands of years later. It's an amazing story that we're going to be reading today. That's because God told Noah how to design that ark. The parameters, the length, the width, the height, the depth of it, all of these things. And God is all-knowing. After all, He is the creator of all things, the maker of heaven and earth. So get ready for an amazing journey through the rest of Genesis 6. We're continuing the last week's journey. And last week we left off at verse 8. So today we're going to start up at chapter 6, verse 9. Let's look at it. It says, This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now let's stop there and we'll discuss these verses as we go along. Noah walked with God. Oh, I love that phrase. I love that sentence. What a contrast to walking with the world. The world doesn't care about you. God cares about you. The world just wants your vote and your money. God wants your love. The world wants you to sin and destroy yourself and do everything that the lust of your eyes tells you to do. Then when you're all used up, the world wants to just discard you and find its next victim. But God wants you to live and to live in peace and joy and hope. And He wants to walk with you and care for you each new day of your life, showing you the wonders of His love. He wants to show you His love and give you everlasting life. Not only here does that start, but everlasting life in His kingdom, the kingdom of heaven with unimaginably beautiful things that you can't even see in your mind's eye. Why would you walk with the world? Walk with God and experience the everlasting life that you were created for. Now let's continue on with verse 11. It says, The earth also was corrupt before God. Just as we were saying, the world is corrupt. 
The earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now we talk about this in verse 11 and 12 and it doesn't take much thought at all to see that the world is getting more and more evil each, each year that goes by. Most people can remember earlier in their lives when the world was not as evil as it is today. Not as cruel, not as hungry for power and wealth and the things that really don't matter in life. Most people can remember when there was more love, more caring, more politeness, more smiles to be seen on the faces of the people. Well, the world is evil because the hearts of men are evil. And without God in their lives, that evil comes in and just makes itself at home. But asking God to help you, believing on His Son, Jesus the Messiah, will bring you the real peace and true riches that you're looking for. The kind the world can never take away. The riches of a heart that is at peace with its Creator. The riches of a peace that the world can never take away. The riches of knowing that you will be enjoying everlasting life in heaven, the most beautiful place imaginable. Now look at verse 13, and we'll take a look at the ark itself. I told you we're going to be talking about it in, through the lens of science and engineering today. So here we go. Verse 13 says, And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Talking about mankind. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth, is what God says in verse 13. Verse 14 then continues, talk, talking to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, cover it over inside and out with pitch, and this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, Pay attention to these numbers. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. Now that's 450 feet. We'll talk about that in a minute. 300 cubits. He says its width will be 50 cubits and its height will be 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with a lower, a second, and third decks. Now, ah, you're talking about numbers, Stephen. I didn't know you were going to do math today. Oh, you stay with me. It gets real fun. It gets real fun. It's exciting. You're going to understand it. You're going to go away with an understanding of the ark that you never had when you saw those little toys with the animals coming into the ark two by two and all these colorful things there with the colors of the animals and all, all their coats and just marching into that ark. You remember those little displays and pictures that you've seen? But today we're looking at it from a completely different standpoint. 300 cubits. A cubit is approximately 18 inches. It can vary anywhere from 17.2 actually to 20 inches depending on what culture. If you're, if you're talking about an Egyptian culture, you might get something closer to 20 inches. But the biblical cubit that we're talking about is approximately 18 inches. And I say approximately because they didn't have a ruler that they measured it with really. It was measured by the tip of a man's fingers all the way down to the bottom of his elbow. 
So from the top of the tip of the fingers to the bottom of the elbow turned out to be on average, depending on how big or small the guy was, about 18 inches. And so that was a cubit. Well, since we call it 18 inches, we can translate that into English by saying, okay, there's 12 inches in a foot, so 18 inches is one and a half feet. And of course, if you get into the, uh, uh, the metric system and everything, then you're looking at a meter of approximately 39 inches. So you can do the math and figure this out as we go. I've already done the math, so I have an advantage on you right now. But interesting thing is, is said to make it out of gopher wood. Now, a lot of people look at that and they go, oh, how cute, gopher wood. It must be wood that gophers like make nests in and everything. No, you're all wrong. I got to tell you. In fact, it's not even an English word. Gopher is actually the Hebrew word itself. It just happens to sound like a little animal that we call a gopher in English. But the letters are actually Hebrew letters from a Hebrew word, and it's gopher. Gopher is actually the Hebrew word. So uh, an English person looks at that and looks at the translation of it and says, Oh, gopher, those cute little animals. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, we really don't know about the root of this word, this Hebrew word. It seems to say that it's a building type of wood. It's a special type of wood from a tree that we don't know about. It was before the flood. It might have been a different type of tree, a tree that doesn't even exist now. But in that area of the world, it was a type of tree, a type of wood that was used for building. And the only thing we know about the root of that Hebrew word gopher is that it meant to build in or to mean to house in. In other words, it was the wood that was used to make houses, to make habitations for the people to live in at that time. It was used for building. It's probably in that area of the world, it probably refers to the cypress tree. Cypress tree would have been a good, strong, sturdy uh, wood. The trees would have been large and plentiful. So you wouldn't have to chop down a lot of trees to get enough wood. You would just chop down one tree and that would provide a lot of wood. Now, of course, something the size of an ark would take a whole lot of trees. And that's what we're going to be talking about next. The ship's design itself. We're going to go over this and you be patient with me. And you're going to come to some real amazing conclusions as we look at these numbers a little bit. The ship, every ship, has what we call a design ratio. The design ratio is how long it is compared to how wide it is and how high it is. Let me say that again. The design ratio is how long it is and how wide it is and how high it is. So you could say that any ship has a design ratio of length and width and height. Whatever their ratio is to that, that's how you figure it out. In this case, the arc was 300 cubits long. It was 50 cubits wide and it was 30 cubits high. So the arc had a design ratio of 300 to 50 to 20. I'm sorry, to 30. Now you could just chop a zero off the end of each one of those and say, okay, it had a design ratio of 30 to 5 to 1. 
for every 30 units of measurement in length, there would be five units of measurement in width and three, and three units of measurement in height. So the ark was 300 meters long, 50 meters wide, and 30 meters in height. Now, if you were to translate that into uh, feet and everything, then 300 becomes 450 feet, right? 300 feet, and then uh, remember the cubit was one and a half feet, so 300 times one and a half is 300 plus 150 are 450 feet. And then the width of it, instead of saying 50 cubits, you would say 50 plus, uh, yeah, 50 is, a, is, is one and a half feet. So 50 plus half of 50 again, that would be 75 feet wide. So 300 or 450 feet long, 75 feet wide. And then it said, 30 feet or 30 cubits in height. So that would be 30 plus half of 30 again. That would be 45. So 45 feet high. So in feet, that would be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet in height. That was the design ratio of the ark. Now you're saying, maybe, well, Stephen, why are you spending so much time on something called the design ratio of the art? Well, here's what I'm saying. That ratio represents advanced knowledge about shipbuilding that is the optimal design for stability in rough seas. That particular ratio of length to that width to that height is the optimal design ratio for designing big ships. And that's how we do it with cruise ships today. And that's how we do it with Navy battleships and, and, and warships and destroyers. Some of the most powerful ships that have ever uh, sailed the seas and everything. That's how they're designed. And that particular design rule wasn't even known until very, very recently. It was thousands of years thousands of years ahead of its time when God gave those instructions to Noah to use those measurements to build the ark. The ark as designed by God was virtually impossible to capsize. It was virtually impossible to turn over on its side because it had the optimal design. It was wide enough and it was short enough in its height and it was long enough in its length that it was almost impossible to capsize even in the largest seas. Now when you do the math, you find out some other things about these measurements. How much capacity this ship could hold. In other words, the ship's volume. When you do the math using the 18-inch cubit that we talked about, that ark would have an internal volume able to hold approximately 1,518,750 cubic feet, cubic foot. There's a foot there. There's a foot there. There's a foot this way too. So this much space there times 1,518,750 cubic feet. You could think of it like this. It's the equivalent of 569 railroad cars. Oh, those are pretty big. 569 standard railroad cars could have fit inside the ark. 
Now, assuming the shape of the ark or the footprint of the ark was rectangular, kind of like a shoebox type shape on the bottom of it, there would have been over 100,000 square feet of floor space. Aren't you glad you don't have to mop and sweep those floors? 100,000 square feet. Just to give you an idea, the average apartment today may only be around 500 to 800 square feet. A house in the United States may be 1,200 square feet to 2,000. Some of them get up to 3,000 square feet. Now, of course, there's mansions that are much more, but the average house, 1,500 square feet maybe. Maybe 1,700 square feet of floor space. But the ark... 100,000 square feet of floor space. Now let's talk about the cargo and the passengers of the ark. Because that's what we're really interested in. Is Noah, his wife, and Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. Eight people total. Out of all the population of the world, those were the ones that were saved. Human beings. But then you had two of each of these animals. Male and female. We're going to talk about that. As I said, the ark was roughly the shape of a shoebox. So if you figure out the volume, and you know the length, and you know the width, and you know the height, you can figure out how much space is inside, and three decks, and you know how much floor space each one of those would have, and, and the shape of the bottom of the boat, the, uh, roughly flat in a shoebox, and it couldn't capsize even in the roughest seas, and it was about the size of the Titanic. Now think about that. There was a reason why the Titanic was called the Titanic. It was because it was the largest ship of the day. In fact, men had proudly proclaimed that this ship will never sink. And then on its first journey, it sank. Hit that iceberg, sank pretty quickly to the bottom. But that was a huge ship. And that's why it was called the Titanic, because it was the biggest in its day. And here's the ark about the size of the Titanic, thousands of years before the Titanic even existed. Hmm. And think about this now. Noah didn't know what rain was. Noah didn't know what flooding was. He lived pretty much on a plain. I mean, maybe they had water and springs or something like that, but he didn't know anything about these flooding conditions and huge amounts of rain. He'd never seen any boat like this. If he hadn't, I doubt he had ever even seen a boat, period, because they usually had just smaller springs around the countryside there, and those would provide water, but you didn't have to float a big boat on those. You didn't even have to float a small boat on there. You just go to the water's edge and draw whatever water you needed and use that to live. There was no reason to put a boat in that water. They really didn't know about boats. And yet here it was, God asking Noah to build this big, big thing. That took 120 years to build. But it was okay because Noah and the people back then lived 800, 900 years. So they were still young, you know. They wasn't even, I guess it was kind of like a midlife type thing. He had three young sons and they were strong and no doubt he could hire people to help him build this and everything. But then they had that cubit wide opening at the top, all the way around the top. It wasn't at the bottom, 
God wanted them looking up at Him and not at the world below. You see, there's a lesson in that, isn't there? It wasn't until 1858 that a boat bigger than the ark was built. Think about that. 1858. What is that? About 160 or so years ago is the first time a boat that big was built, a bigger than the ark, and yet it was over 3,000 years before that the ark was built. Way, way, way before, thousands and thousands of years, over three, 4,000 years before that the ark was built. So the ark was certainly big enough to do the job of carrying those eight people and also the animals. We're going to talk about that now. But first, I want to show you a picture of a full-size copy of the ark that's been built in the United States in the state of Kentucky. Now, I'll just put that picture up on the screen and I'll continue talking about it. That ark is identical to the size measurements that God told Noah to build. Now, the person that built this ark is not expecting another flood. In fact, God himself said he wasn't going to destroy the earth through a flood and water in it again. But there is a judgment coming in which it will be destroyed with fire one day. But the ark that is built in Kentucky is a faithful, full-size model of it. And what you're looking at is that ark as it's standing there, having been built using exactly the measurements given by God to Noah. Now notice those cars and big trucks down there next to it. Look how tiny they are. People don't even look as big as ants compared to that ark. In fact, it's almost the size of a Navy ship that I was on one time and that Pat was on too. We went because I had a nephew who was in the Navy and I had been in the Navy before and we went out to sea on the ship. It was named, it's a famous ship, it was the USS Tarawa. The USS Tarawa is a marine amphibious assault ship and it is an aircraft carrier, but it's an aircraft carrier for helicopters and certain special types of planes that can land vertically and everything like that and take off vertically. So it's an aircraft carrier, and it's just a little bit bigger than the Ark. And yet you could put 2,000 Marines and sailors on that ship, and it's just a little bit bigger than the Ark. Now think about this. The animals that were on the Ark I mentioned this last week, but if you weren't here last week, or I just want to remind you that you could look at the animals two different ways. The ark could have carried two of every family of animals. A family of animals. Now remember, we're dealing with the start of creation. Creatures, man, lived a long time, 800, 900 years. And here it was where Noah's grandfather was alive at the same time as Adam. That's how long Adam lived. That's how long people lived. So Noah, no doubt, heard the stories from his grandfather about what Adam told him personally about the flood. Or, I'm sorry, about creation, about God, walking with him in the garden and all like that. Now here's Noah bringing these animals. But these animals haven't had the time to multiply throughout the earth. That's what I'm saying. So there wasn't a lot of diversity from the animals that God made. And he didn't have to make every species, you see. 
Last week we talked about dogs. Dogs, you could have just a couple of dogs. If you, I'm not saying you did, but you could have a couple of dogs and then they selectively breed them and find out which breeding habits makes short dogs, which one makes tall dogs, which one makes dogs with short hair, which one makes dogs with long hair, which ones make dogs with short ears, which ones make dogs with long ears. And as you selectively breed and you see what, what comes out of that, of that breeding that you did with these two animals, then you set them aside if you like what they produced and you want to produce more of those, then you breed those two animals again. But if you breed with another animal over here and it makes a taller animal and you like the taller dogs, then you keep breeding those again, then you get taller and taller dogs. Over here's the short one, over here's the taller ones. Over here's the black one, over here's the spotted one. Over here's the brown one, over here's the golden retriever, over here's the French poodle, you see. That's how species of dogs came about. They weren't created individually as those species. They could have evolved from that. But if you took 700 pairs of animals from each of the families of each animal that were on the earth at that time, these were the starting families that God had made of the animals. If you took one male and one female from each of those families, the ark would have been plenty big to hold those. And you say, well, wait a minute. What if you use the species? Okay. If the ark carried two of every species of animal, then there would have been around 35,000 pairs of animals instead of 700 pairs of animals from a family of animals, you see. If you use species, there would have been around 35,000 pairs. You go, well, I don't know, Stephen. I don't know how you're going to put 35,000 pairs of animals in that ark. Well, I told you this ark was big. Now, even though there are some very large animals, we know, elephants, lions, rhinoceroses, hippopotamuses, all of these, most animals are not that large. In fact, the average size, listen to this, the average size of a land animal on earth in our worth, the average size of a land animal is actually smaller than a sheep. Makes sense, doesn't it, though? I mean, look at how many smaller animals there are. You've got mice. You know, you've got snakes. You've got possums. You've got chickens. You've got all of these things and everything. So 35,000 pairs of animals from 35,000 species of animals. You say, well, I don't know that the ark could carry all those, but if you do the math, remember we figured out the volume of the ark? You'd find out that the ark could actually carry 136,560 sheep in only half of its volume, in only half of its capacity. The average size land animal is smaller than a sheep and the ark could carry 136,560 sheep and only half its, its capacity. And there were only 35,000 species. So you'd have 35,000 species times two, one male and one female for each of the 35,000 species. That comes out to 70,000 animals. 
but the ark could carry 136,560 sheep in only half of its capacity, leaving plenty of room for people, food, water, and whatever other supplies were needed. Now let's continue on from verse 17. Verse 17 says, And behold, God is saying, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which there is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Verse 18, But I will establish my covenant with you, he's talking to Noah, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Eight people. Verse 19 then continues, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Now, as you see, God's talking about male and female because those are the ones that reproduce. That's why the, uh, the Garden of Eden story is not about Adam and Steve. It's about Adam and Eve. <laughs> so I mean, God knows what he's doing. I just, I'm not sure we do sometimes. So, but that's another story for another time. Of the birds after their kind, he says in verse 20, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. In other words, he was saying these animals know that they're coming to you because you're going to keep them alive. God's going to make these animals understand Noah doesn't have to chase them down and herd cats and things like that. They're going to come to him. God's going to make it to where they come to him. And the animals are going to know that Noah is the guy who's going to keep them alive. And so they're going to come to him. And it says in verse 21, And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be for food for you and for them. And I love this verse. The last verse in this chapter, Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. Hmm. Remember that first area of verses that we read? It says, And Noah walked with God. Now at the very end of the chapter, the other bookend to that thought is that Noah did all that God commanded him to do. He walked with God and he did all that God commanded him to do. Now there's a lot of people today, as you know, that say that the Bible isn't really the Word of God. It's just somebody wrote a book. And, oh, actually it's 66 books by 40 authors written over a period of 1,500 or more years. And most of those authors didn't even know each other. They lived at different times. They never met each other, didn't even know about the writings of each other many times. And yet God's Word that He gave them to write confirmed exactly the detail of other prophets who wrote other books in the Bible that God had inspired to write. They might have lived hundreds of years apart from each other, but God confirms the prophecies of other prophets through the prophets of the for newer prophecies of the newer prophets. And this way you see that 
wow, this thing was put together not by one person or even a group of friends or anything. In fact, they didn't even live at the same place. They didn't live at the same time. Some of them were hundreds of years apart from each other. How can those things exactly fit together when you put them all together? It's because the Holy Spirit moved these people to write. And that's one of the amazing things about the Bible that proves that it's not just a book. It's the Word of God. Now these same people that don't like to acknowledge God try to say that the ark is just a story. It never existed. There's actually a great amount of evidence outside of the Bible even that supports a biblical account. Let's go through some of it. In 275 B.C., Barossus, a Babylonian historian, wrote, But of the ship that grounded in Armenia, some part of it still remains in the mountains. And some go up there to get some of the pitch from the ship. Remember that tar, that pitch that they made that God told them to use? And they scrape it off, he said. Around 75 A.D., 75 A.D., Josephus, the historian, which you've heard us talk about before in Bible studies, Josephus said that the locals collected relics from the ark and showed them off, even to his very day. In his time, they were still collecting relics and, and uh, uh, samples of the ark and showing them off to other people, showing these antiques that they got from the very ark in the books that they study in the Torah. And he also said that all the other ancient historians he knew of wrote about the ark as well. Then in A.D. 180, Theophilus of Antioch wrote, The remains of the ark are there to be seen to this day in the mountains. An elderly Armenian man in America said that as a boy, he visited the ark with his father and they took three atheist scientists along with them. This was in 1856. And their goal was to disprove the ark's existence. They organized this expedition. They went up there. It was common knowledge where that ark was under that ice and everything on that tall mountains. On one of the mountains of Ararat, that's what that region was. Somewhere in the northern part of Turkey. Their goal was to disprove the ark's existence. They were atheist scientists. And they wanted to go there to put this nonsense to rest and show people that the ark didn't exist. But instead, they found it. And they became so angry while they were there that the boy recalled that these atheist scientists were trying to destroy it. But they couldn't because it was too big and... It was wood, after all, and after all those years, the wood had become petrified, so it was like rock. You know how that works, where the wood can become petrified. And then in 1918, one of those scientists, atheist scientists that had gone with them, he was an Englishman, admitted on his deathbed that the whole story was true. In 1876, a distinguished British statesman and author Viscount James Bryce claimed Ararat, climbed Ararat, and reported finding a four-foot-long piece of hand-tooled timber at an altitude of more than 13,000 feet, or 4,300 meters. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Wood, tree wood, 
hand-tooled tree wood at 13,000 feet. As you go up in elevation on the mountains, there comes a certain elevation where trees can no longer grow. And so the top of the mountain is just snow or rock or something else or these little moss type things that can grow there. But trees don't have enough oxygen up there. It's too cold for them up there. They freeze and they can't grow and they can't thrive. So you have what is called a tree line. And any place in the world where there is mountains, there is a tree line. If you look up on the tallest mountains and beyond that elevation, trees cannot grow. That's true in Southern California. It's true in the Middle East. It's true in the Himalayas. It's true in the Rocky Mountains. It's true all over the world, in Europe, in the Alps. It's true. And sometimes that tree line can vary a few thousand feet lower or higher, depending on the conditions around there. In most of Europe, the tree line is between 5,000 and 7,000 feet. And trees don't usually grow above that height. There's two places in the world where trees can grow up to 13,000 feet. But the mountains of Ararat are not one of them. Another one is in Mexico. It could grow up to like 11, 12,000 feet. But the mountains in Ararat can only have a tree line of up to around six to 8,000 feet. And here this Viscount James Bryce, this British statesman and author, climbs up Ararat and finds this wood at 13,000 feet in a place that has a tree line of less than 8,000 feet. How did that wood get there? How did it get tooled by hand? How did that ark get there, you see? Turkish soldiers claim to have seen the ark in as recently as 1916. Six Turkish soldiers claim to have seen the ark. In an early part of last century in the 1900s, a Russian aviator named Vladimir Rukovitsky claimed the discovery of Noah's ark. He was stationed in southern Russia near the Turkish border and Mount Ararat. And he tested a plane that he and his co-pilot flew over Ararat and discovered on the edge of a glacier what he described as a boat the size of a battleship. Mm. He said it was partially submerged in a lake, and he could see that there was, an there was an opening for a door nearly 20 feet or 7 meters square, but the door was missing. Rokovavitsky told his commanding officer and, the, and an expedition was dispatched to find the ark and photograph it. The report was forwarded to the Tsar of Russia at that time, who was soon overthrown, and they forgot about the photos, and the report perished. But then in 1936, a young British archaeologist named Hardwick Knight hiked across Ararat and discovered interlocking hand-tooled timbers at a height of 14,000 feet. There you go. The timbers where they can't have timbers, and at 14,000 feet, in the same place that these other people had seen such a thing and such an ark. And then during World War II, two pilots saw and even photographed something they believed was an ark or the ark on Mount Ararat. There have been many more recent attempts to find and document the ark. 
but they've all been hindered by politics and surrounded in controversy because this is in the northern part of Turkey, and Turkey is an Islamic nation, you see, and there's a lot of politics there. They don't want people to go up there and discover something that proves the Jewish Bible. Now, I want to talk to you about the pitch. God had told Noah to use pitch, basically tar, to cover it inside and out. We now know that pitch works to waterproof wood. God told Noah to cover it with pitch inside and out. That makes it possible that the ark wood would be preserved for a long time because of the pitch. And because of this mention of pitch, a petroleum product, the investor, wealthy investor John D. Rockefeller looked at this verse and said, well, there must be oil in the Middle East. And so he went to that region and based on that found oil in the region and of course became very, very wealthy because of that. All from the Bible verse that talked about the pitch that God quoted to Noah. And then on another note, you know, it's possible that God still has a purpose for the ark. Its discovery and revelation could serve to warn the other people of the world of impending judgment by God. In fact, Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 3 and 1, uh, verse 1 through 7, relates the future judgment to the judgment of the flood. And he says that unbelievers will willy, willfully forget that the world that existed then perished being flooded with water. That's true. Peter was saying that under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. People do forget, but they willfully try to forget. They intentionally, they try to forget the warnings of God because they don't like to think about God. And that judgment is still going to come. Forgetting it's not going to stop it. It's just going to make you not prepared for it. And the judgment will come, Jesus said, at an hour when they least suspect it. So the Lord says to you and I who believe on Him, Watch and be ready. Watch. Be ready. Be looking for His coming. Be eagerly waiting for our redemption from judgment because our sins have been taken away, atoned for by the blood of the Lamb of God, the blemish-free Lamb of God, Jesus the Messiah. And that, my Hebrew brother and sister, is why in Hebrew His name is Yeshua which means salvation of God. So watch and be ready. He's coming soon. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, we've looked at all these measurements and historical records, and we've held a technical design review on the dimensions of seaworthiness and stability and reliability analysis of the ark. So, but there's a very, very important spiritual message here as well. Today's message shows us that not only can you trust the Word of God, it is always, always, always true, but you can see how God feels about sin and corruption and violence. You can see the evil that existed at the time of Noah. And Jesus in the New Testament said, As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of God returns. So yes, that means it will be a time of evil when he returns, a time of corruption, a time of greed, a time of selfishness, a time of thinking only about oneself, a time of not caring about life. And people will not even consider how short the time is before judgment arrives. 
just as they were in the days of Noah. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, and they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Now, what is that about, Stephen? Eating, drinking, everybody does that. Marrying, being married, that everybody does that. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. They were doing normal things, and they didn't know that anything was approaching, and then suddenly the judgment of God will take them away. It comes without warning. Oh, you, you've been warned here, but it comes without signs and notice. You've been warned by the Bible. You've been warned by the Son of God. You've been warned by those that believe on Him and the Holy Spirit in them. It was a time of great evil in the days of Noah. Then suddenly, it was a time of great judgment. But wait, that's how it is today, right? How many people die simply because some evil dictator halfway around the world wants to remain in power? How many lies are told in the news just to support one political party over another? How many millions of tiny, defenseless babies with living, beating hearts will be killed? Maybe even only seconds before they're born. When will people open their eyes and see the evil that has taken over the world today, that has taken over their own hearts? When will they see... When will our nations cry out to God to forgive us and to turn our hearts to Him and to heal us and give us pure hearts, clean hearts? It can all start with one person. It could start with you. With you, it can start. Why don't you give your life to God today? Right now. If you call out to Him, He'll hear that cry and He'll answer you and He'll rescue you from that darkness and He'll shine His light on your heart and you'll be given newness of life, all new. He will change you into a new person, throw all that bad history, all that sin and judgment away and you'll be made completely new, given a new start and He'll give you everlasting life in heaven. That's His guarantee made by God Himself. We want to give you an opportunity to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and Lord and to receive God's peace in your life today. You can be saved and given everlasting life in heaven by simply believing that God sent His one and only Son into the world to save us from judgment. Just pray something like this. You can repeat after me if you'd like. God, I do want to know you and have real peace in life. I believe on your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Please forgive all my sins. I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I want to tell you something. God heard you, and He's already started working in your life. A little seed's been planted deep down in your heart, and over time it's going to grow you're going to begin to see wonderful changes that God's making in your life, in your heart. Get in a good Bible-based church. Learn about Him in His Word. Talk to God every day in prayer. He's going to do beautiful things in your life.